This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, incorporating the Catholic faith into everything they do and every subject they teach. To find out if Seton is right for you and your family, go to seatonhome.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, it's great to be with you. We actually have been uh, hanging out together uh, most of the week, huh? We have. It was a rare treat. We got yeah. to do some road tripping. We uh, we got to go to a conference. We got to nerd out with our friends at a canon law conference. Um, you know what the highlight was for me? Do tell. The highlight for me was this. Um, we went to a local restaurant for dinner one night. And as I as is my wont, I ordered a slab of beef. Um, and they asked me if I wanted a soup or a salad. And I said, I'll have a salad. I could feel sort of my wife's disembodied spirit hanging over my shoulder saying, you need a salad. So I ordered a salad and they asked you, and then you said, well, what are the soups? And they listed them and one of them caught my ear. And so I ordered One of it. the soups was beer cheese soup with popcorn. Everyone at yeah. our table ended up ordering it. All, all, all uh, us and our dinner guests all ordered beer cheese soup with popcorn. And it was effectively microwave Velveeta with popcorn. It was not. It was ballpark nacho dip. With some popcorn. Well, with no spice. I mean, I thought it might be queso dip, but there's no spice going on. It was just, it was very plain cheese, which it was, was fine. the most it. remarkable thing I've ever had served to me under the guise of soup. <laughs> I, God bless the Midwest. That I mean, that was really, I, I was proud to be an American when they put that in front of me. And what was, I think in that town, quite quite a ritzy restaurant. Yeah, it was something. I mean, that the soup was good. It was, it was. I mean, no, the oh, soup I ate was, the whole thing. Don't get me wrong. I didn't yeah. turn my nose up. I, mean, I loved I, it. I, I know. I know you ate the whole thing, and it was good. I guess it was. Um, I I don't think that I would order beer cheese soup with popcorn again because it was too bland for me. But I was glad to have ordered it. Well, your problem was you were just eating the soup. They also gave us that tranche of garlic bread toast. Yeah, I didn't. Which I, didn't. I was using instead of a spoon. And, oh, and I think that added. That might have made it a difference because it did seem to me like it was, the concept was cool, but it did very honestly seem to me to be a bit under-seasoned. Well, well, at its World Youth Day this week, and hundreds of thousands of young people have uh, have converged on Lisbon, Portugal, where they have um, been spending time uh, already having masses and um, and otherwise um, celebrating the faith with the Pope. And we have had, I think, really very cool and interesting coverage of World Youth Day. We have a, a, our, our correspondent, Felipe, who is Portuguese, is on the ground in Lisbon, kind of doing some interviews. And um, he did a lot of interesting preliminary coverage. And what he's doing now is basically filing with us every day a kind of World Youth Day diary of just interesting things that he sees, people he talks with, short interviews. Um, and, and I think they've been really very good. What has struck you, Ed, about World Youth Day um, over these these past few days as it's been unfolding in Portugal? Um, I, I guess the thing that has struck me most about World Youth Day is that it's actually something you and I were talking about in the car the other day. Um, and it's this, that, you know, along with World you know, we, we Felipe's stuff has been excellent. The, you know, the, I'm hearing from people who have gone that I know that are having a great time. Um you know, it's always a big event. It's, it is always potentially a life-changing event for people. I know the World Youth Days I attended as a, as a much younger man were, were very powerful for me. They were, they were real experiences of faith. Um, and I believe strongly in the, in the sort of pilgrim, in the reality of, uh, of pilgrim encounter with the Lord that um, 
it is necessary at times in our life to uproot ourselves from literally where we are and to move to another place. The discomfort of the journey, the the pain of the flights, the the hassle of buses, the you know trekking for miles, the sleeping out, all of that stuff. That I think that kind of precariousness and um, disturbance to our our sort of normal routine in life, I think, helps in a in a sort of physical way to attune us better to to being open to whatever God might want to say to each and every one of us individually. Um, so I I do love World Youth Day for that. But of course, in, in attendant to this, there we've seen all these. At least I've seen people complaining um, about different things about you know how this this World Youth Day has gone weird and ecumenical and sort of pseudo woke and other people complaining that, you know, the, the, the big outdoor Eucharist, uh, that happened on Wednesday, was it, there was a, there was a sort of opening mass, um, with a big crowd and, and people were very, some people were very upset because they didn't like the way that, um, it looked with the distribution of, the sacrament and things, and people were asking questions about, you know, well, how was how was all of this consecrated? How is it being stored and trapped around? Couldn't you find enough priests to distribution? Why were there lay people doing, you know, acting as extraordinary ministers? This sort of thing, and you always get um, these kinds of controversies. You know, people getting upset about these things or wondering about these things around World Youth Day. And the thing that you and I were talking about in the car the other day, and that really has been the thing that I've been thinking about about this World Youth Day is, um, it can be tempting to think that World Youth Day is going in a particular direction. And depending on your point of view, you might like the direction or not like the direction. I think it's getting more, you know, it's getting watered down or it's getting too conservative. Oh, just World Youth Day sort of, that that World Youth Day is trending in a particular way over time. Yes. Yes. When actually what we were talking about is um, someone had reminded you that, you know, the World Youth Day that we both reference on the show quite often, the World Youth Day in Denver, which was such an important moment for the life of the church in the United States, um, and gave birth to a lot of um, the the, the apostolic birth, movement plant. in life in the church in the United States. Yeah, it was the it was the seedbed of, of much yeah. of what has followed in the last yeah. thirty years. I think, but it was actually a mess in certain ways, right? Right at at the time, it was a it was a massively and people controversial were scandalized event. by it, right? And people people were rightly scandalized by parts of it. And there was this Stations of the Cross, in which um, which was performed by a troop of mimes, in which Jesus was portrayed by a woman in a way that many people said was disrespectful and. And it was there was a ton of controversy about it. I mean, lots and lots of people said, "What these things that have happened at World Youth Day are scandalous." And indeed, I think some of the things that happened at that World Youth Day probably were scandalous, though I wasn't there and I didn't see them. But just as I hear it, it sounds like there were certain things that were done weirdly. Um, and yet, I mean, the cool thing is, and yet, the fruit of it is all this stuff, right? So that seems well, to be it. Yeah. So what has been occurring to me about World Youth Day in the last couple of days, as I thought about it, is. Is this not the reality of the church? Right. Isn't this a kind of a microcosm? Yeah, I was just going to say. There is something for everyone to get angry about if that's what you're looking for. (laughs) There is something beautiful for everyone if that's what you want to look for. There are fantastic stories coming out of it. There are people who are having a miserable time, and I'm sure not enjoying it and going, I wish I hadn't come. But there are also going to be vocations that come out of this. There are going to be couples that come home and end up getting married because they met at World Youth Day. There are going to be, I don't know how many priestly and religious vocations that that are discovered in the, in the course of World Youth Day in Lisbon. And is this not the church? Right. Saints, sinners, yeah. chaos, order, yeah. madness. But this is, this is the progress of the church through history. And that's right. So that's what I've been thinking about. Yeah, no, that's right. It's a kind of a microcosm, right? Lots, yes, lots, lots to complain about. Lots of people from lots of places, lots of beautiful things happening at the same time, probably things which are objectively scandalous and all of them moving together towards Jesus Christ.
And the only real inevitability is at the front of every line is a group of several hundred Italians cutting in. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, that's a really good, that's a really good insight. I was also thinking about, um, you know, your point about a pilgrimage. I think that's probably lost a lot in the conversation about World Youth Day and what is World Youth Day and, and, um, you know, the, the kind of, yeah, the sort of criticisms that we've seen of various parts of it or things like that is one of the things that's probably most underappreciated is that the, the fruit of World Youth Day is as much joining in and, and, and entering into a pilgrimage, um, towards, um, a holy place. Now, you could say towards a holy place, which is to say, you know, to the cathedral of uh, um, Lisbon or to Fatima itself, or um, or to just this holy place, which is sort of a pop up holy place, which is to say, this gathering of an expression of the church's uh, collegiality and, and unity in these things. Um, but um, pilgrimages are cool in and of themselves, and many people who I think go to World Youth Day, a big part of the fruit of it is they have li- very little experience with pilgrimages, which are um, which are uh, different from vacations and different from kind of tourism and stuff like that because they're they just take on this sort of um, spirit of of, uh, of of depending on if, if they're done well of depending on providence and things tend to not go how you expect and you know um, there tend to be a lot of audibles that have to be called and I it always seems to me that one has on a good pilgrimage a sort of clearer sense of the of the hand of providence or the presence of God or the will of God. And I suspect that that's actually a big part of the sort of converting mechanism of world youth. I don't want to sort of, um, it would be extremely cliche to say like, oh, I guess there's a joy in the journey. But, uh, you know, I feel almost silly kind of using a, a cliche like that. But I do think that's part of it is just um, very few people today have the experience of a protracted pilgrimage experience, a, a journeying towards the Lord and especially journeying towards the Lord with others. And that is in itself a powerful experience of the life of the church and the relationship between communion and sacrament, you know, between ecclesial communion and, and, uh, and, and the sacrament of the church and, um, and the presence of God in, the, in those things as they're intertwined with each other. Yeah. I mean, the, the way is part of it. The way is an important part of it. The mess in getting there and even the mess in getting home sometimes is, is all part of what makes a pilgrimage. And I mean, this is, not to you know not to be trite but this is a metaphor for life um you know we we are a pilgrim people the church teaches that the whole of our see, life see there's is no way to talk about this stuff without sounding like you're just quoting out of the gathering and that's why i was so reticent to do it it's like um is that it's it's, I, do, I have almost no experience with the, the only experience <laughs> i have of the gather hymnal these days um i mean i'm sure i heard it as like a nine-year-old or whatever but um these days is there's an early mass near my house that sometimes i go to on a sunday if there's nothing else i can make it to and it is it is definitely the gather mass, like six piece guitar and mm-hmm. you know band up at the top. Um, there's a triangle sometimes, and they play exclusively David Haas hymns from the gather hymnal, which I find slightly puzzling in this day and age. But uh, that's what they go for. But I mean, this is how the church speaks of of life. I mean, this is you know you read the documents of the ecumenical councils and things like that, it, and especially Vatican II to speak of. Um, the church as a pilgrim people, that that is a, that is the self understanding of the church that, you know, history is dynamic. Our, our progress through it is dynamic that we as individuals and as a church are moving through history, moving towards a destination. And the destination is the return of Christ. That this sense of dynamism is, is not just important. It's instructive that we learn 
through through the travel either physically or through time or whatever else that that's you know part of how god has written the history of salvation that is it's progressive in in a non icky sense of the word so ed what is a dream since we're talking about this i'm curious like what are what's a what's a i i don't know if you're like me but i've got a couple of pilgrimages in my mind that i'd like love to do but i don't know that i ever will do you have a what's like a pilgrimage that you hope to to do i've always wanted to do the camino i mean i i have always wanted to do that i i'm resigned to the fact that it's almost impossible that i ever will but i i would love to have the time to do that uh the you know those three um three bishops plus a priest uh who did from that? the US who did the the Lindisfarne way which I didn't know was a pilgrim route until mm-hmm. they talked to Luke Coppin about it uh that looked pretty cool uh I so I I would like to do that and that was like from England into Scotland right no, it was basically along the English-Scottish border. The Holy Island of Lindisfarne is off the east coast of England and is in England. It was one of the earliest uh, dioceses erected in England. It was very, it's a fascinating point in, in the history of uh, Christianity in, on, the, on the British Isles, if you're interested in that sort of thing, and stop me if you're not. Um, but And you can read about this if you want and be the Venerable's history ecclesiastical history of the english peoples but um the you know so you had augustine of canterbury and everything and they all came over from rome and they started in kent and they sort of were creeping up but then you had coming over from ireland and through scotland the celtic monastics who were you know these weird and wild and wonderful saints and bishops and evangelists and everything else and they were coming down from the north and lindisfarne was was sort of the great um and he became a pilgrim site because so many bishops of lindisfarne were saints and did crazy and interesting things like you know one of them um as a mortification of the flesh would wade into the north sea up to his chin mm-hmm. um, yeah. to experience the freezing waters and the lord would apparently send seals who would cluster around him to keep to him keep warm, him warm. And, he would, yeah. and he would get furiously angry with the seals and cuss them out as they were doing this because he was trying to you know um strip himself of the uh, of the dignity and high-mindedness of being a bishop so that he could you know get back to his monastic roots and stuff so fantastic characters all that stuff and then they sort of met the celtic monks and and augustine's romans in the middle where in good catholic tradition they had a massive gigantic fight over the proper date of easter um so it's just yeah i I would like to do that it sounds like fun to me yeah that would be really really cool where do you want to go uh yeah everybody wants to do the camino and i'm 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 down um, there is though, and I've often thought that like when my kids get a little older, it would be very cool to do the Camino as a family. I don't know if you've thought about that. No, I would, I would, no, I'd rather not do it than <laughs> do it as a family. No, thank you. There, okay. The chances of like uh, getting to spend time walking through the mountains and through the fields and the forest and everything, reflecting on my life, praying, all of that stuff. If, if you're doing that and you've, you know, you've got a kid or kids and you know where are we go when are we stopping what is you know what's what are we gonna eat where are we sleeping tonight i don't like this place isn't there a nicer place can we go to a hotel like forget about it no thank you well i guess i i i think all of that is um maybe a good metaphor for the domestic church like um sure but i want to do the community to escape from that the whiny pilgrimage (laughs) of the domestic church seems to me important i know some priests who last year did a, a long walking pilgrimage um uh, that was the way of the um, of the North American martyrs. It was like the, through upstate New York that was, or started Massachusetts maybe, and through upstate New York that was kind of cool. But the the can wo- you do that over here? Walk? Yeah, I I mean my my limited experience of walking along American roadsides is that you get weird looks and people pull over and 
ask you if you're all right. And, you know, it, is there like, is, is like it established? That's, that's a, that's a big difference though. I think I forgot that that would be hard for you is there's like, there's nothing like if you get weird looks and someone asks you if you're doing what you should be doing, you, for you, that is almost like a, we shouldn't, we definitely shouldn't be doing this. Like that's enough for you. Whereas like, um, that just tells me that I should be doing it. I, I kind of forgot that about you. It would be hard for you probably. Well, that's just, you know, only in, only in the United States, because I don't, I'm not aware of the cultural, you know, norms and sensitivities. And I, I look, I worry. But it's often the along- case that we're doing stuff and, and you're like, someone's, someone's mad at us about this. And uh, for me, it's like, well, then we should definitely do it. And for you, it's like, we, we got to get out of here. For me, it's like, I've seen first blood. I don't want to be stopped by some, you know, <laughs> cop in a hick town and, you know, chased into the forest. I, I don't think that's something. Uh, okay. So, um, so that is a, that is a cool pilgrimage route, but do you know about the path of Abraham? No. So this is a relatively recently established pilgrimage route that is beginning to have kind of hostels along it. And, you know, the kind of like the Camino, if you walk the Camino, people have been doing it for so long that there's like entire towns built up along the various roads of the Camino, the the various ways of the Camino, um, which specialize in the accommodation and feeding of pilgrims. And, 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 um, and so there's sort of these, you know, at, at, at appropriate day long walk intervals, there are places to stop that are really well established and all that. Um, but that happens over a long period of time, but there is, um, at a very cool pilgrim route that is, uh, that, it, that has recently begun to sort of uh, be more established and have more um, infrastructure to it, and it's the way of Abraham. And so it starts uh, in in um, in southeastern Turkey, uh, outside the city of Urfa, which is where at least some people think that Abraham was born. Uh, not everyone, but some people think that Abraham um, doesn't he say he was born in Ur? Or, yeah, but the, what what that Ur means is yeah, but what that means is up for a, a certain amount of debate. Okay, yeah. There are different. Um, there are different. Uh, there are different people land on different places about where Ur of the Chaldeans is, and so some people, and especially a lot of um, uh, a lot of Muslims, hold that Abraham was uh, born um, in this sort of south, in sort of southeastern Turkey, for a variety of longstanding reasons. So the the sort of via Abraham starts there and then walks um, down uh, through Turkey. Um, eventually making its way uh, into Palestine and then into Israel and walking. This is what's kind of cool about it to me um, through Jerusalem, but ending in the Negev, in the, in the Negev, in the Negev desert, like um, ending hmm. not in the city of Jerusalem, but ending um, in, in the desert. And I think there's a lot of tradition that says that Abraham was probably buried in the, in the, in the desert. Is that right? Does scripture say that Abraham was buried in the desert? Uh, look, I thought I was doing well saying that he was born in our, <laughs> okay, uh, I now I want to know now. Uh, that's a that's a heck of a. I mean, I'm just I'm thinking through what that would mean to walk from southern Turkey to Israel, and I mean, yeah, you you said you you end up in in Palestine or whatever, but you, you kind of skipped out Syria and the Lebanon yeah, in between. I did, I did. Like yeah. that's a that's that, that's a that's a trek man um yeah it is it's some like 600 miles and but it's through some very interesting places oh so there is this sort of sense uh of where abraham was was buried in the west bank but anyway for some reason this pilgrimage ends not there but in um south of that in in the desert out in in in, in israel um but that seems to me like a very cool pilgrimage route in which one would see some extraordinarily beautiful things and um 
some extraordinarily beautiful terrain. And it seems cool to me actually to go through some holy places and then ends when one's pilgrimage, having walked through the holy places and then and, and then coming back again into the desert as a kind of um, almost, you know, a reminder of the cyclical nature in a certain way of the spiritual life and a cyclical nature of the liturgical calendar and then a reminder of the need always to sort of return into the desert for penance and conversion. This is, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, this is how Bede records the, the, the court of a Kentish king receiving Augustine's missionary in his history of, the ecclesiastical history of the English peoples, is that the the monks come up from Canterbury and sort of make their pitch to be heard by the king, and he says, "I don't know," and sends them out, and invites in his his you know sort of barons or fiefs or whoever it is, and says, "What do you all think? Should I listen to these guys?" And one of them says, "Look, all we know about the world is you know the world is like life is like this you know Viking Saxon mead hall that they were in." And it's like a bird that comes in through the roof, swirls around the fire a couple of times, and goes back out through the window. And that you know, life is a few fleet. Life on this earth is a few fleeting seconds of light, before which and after which are darkness and storms, and we don't know what's going on. And if these men can shed any light on it; they should be made welcome. And that's how. And that, and that, brothers and sisters, is how England came to be converted. Um, so yes, mm-hmm. I like that idea of the cyclical nature of starting in the desert, ending in the desert. That this is you know part of it. Yeah, I, that's cool. Yeah, I think that's. I think so, that's are you going to do this? I don't know. I, I mean, this, as I say, this sort of pilgrimage route is still sort of being established, and I think one does it with guides, especially through, <laughs> through some Perhaps of those a tank places that we're I, talking about. I would like to see Mrs. Flynn's face when you say you're going to go for a stroll through Syria. Mrs. But, Flynn know. is a big supporter of my wanderlust. I mean, you know that she's always encouraging me off to somewhere else. Yeah, um, but it is an active war zone. Yeah, but Mrs. Flynn, uh, Mrs. Flynn's cool. I, 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 I don't think that'll be the problem. <laughs> That's great. My, yeah. my wife gets angry if I go to Wisconsin for two days. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Um, well, Ed, what I want to talk about today is we got some very interesting feedback from our C9 draft last week, and, uh, and uh, I want to talk about that, and then I want to talk about some other things related to the College sure. of Cardinals. Um, so the feedback I got was that I won. Yeah, um, we did get the feedback that you won. I mean, I think a lot of people thought that you drafted a better C9 than I did. I don't I, I don't dispute that. I think, uh, you know, I, I think we both drafted very good C9s, and I think people think yours there was better. There was a heartbreaking moment where an archbishop weighed in to say that. An archbishop <laughs> weighed in to say that he liked. So both of us got an email from an archbishop this week, and his email to you said that he liked your C9, and his email to me did not mention my C9 at all. And uh, so, you know, that was, that was, that was cool. I thought, I thought our C9s were roughly on par with each other. So it wasn't so much that you won that broke my heart. It was how resoundingly you won in the Twitter poll that we put up. I think you ended up winning like 60-40 or more and uh, um, possibly even more than that. And I, as I say, I don't, I'm glad, I don't mind that you won. I just did, I just, it, it is not clear to me that my Why? thing was, you know, only 40% of, you know, that my thing only merited 40% of the vote. I mean, I thought it would have been closer. Well, I, what do you that think, makes sense. What do you, tell me what you think your victory was all about. Um, pizza I, think ball. I, I think people liked saying pizza ball. Pizza ball. I think that's 90 People like saying pizza ball. I think picking the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, who also happens to have an incredibly satisfying name, I think mm-hmm. that was probably worth five points um, on the poll for me. Uh, I think people... People responded well to my 
my naked currying of favor with Eastern Church's sui Yeah, that's right. I mean, more people liked your choice of Eastern Catholic uh, eparchs than there are Eastern Catholics. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, I Also, I picked Cardinal Collins was a big um, vote winner for yeah, me. Yeah, you pretty much locked up Canada. So now I see that what you were doing, while I was picking the C9 that I thought would most serve the church, you were you were effectively building some demographic bases because you've because you anticipated that this was a competition. I mean, kudos to you, I suppose. I I'm pretty sure I said up front, first of all, this is a competition. And second of <laughs> all, I'm picking my C9 to form a representative I just didn't realize that was the universal for church. the voters of our of our thing. Look, if you pay look, if I'm picking a C9 that is supposed to represent <laughs> the universal church and the universal church turns around and recognizes themselves in that representation and endorses it, <laughs> that's that why I win, baby. It's basically, I mean, it's basically as far as I can tell, it's the census fidelium. I mean, you the census fidelium has spoken and acclaimed your C9. In a certain way, I think it is the true C9. Um, I wouldn't go you know that what I far. Mean? No, but... I think there's no other true C9. I think I think it is by virtue of the acclamation of the people, the true and authentic C9. I'm a, I like in, in as much as that C9 is not recognized, I might be a set of C9 cyst. Which is well, to say maybe. I, I believe that the seed of the C9 is vacant until such time as the true C9 is recognized. I would I would like at this point to be able to make a crack about, you know, well, of course the conclave could elect anyone who, you know, could uh could serve and if if elected, I'm not saying I wouldn't send Mrs. Oh Connor to a conference. But the reality is that's an urban legend, folks. You can I cannot be elected Pope. Only a cardinal. I, I I don't think that's so. I thought they changed it. I thought it was or not only a cardinal, only um so only a cleric. I thought the no. UDG as as it's currently drafted is is rather um harder on that. I don't have the law in front of me. To the law, Ed. Let's take law. a look at the law and, uh, and find I'm out about sure that. I'm pretty sure you question have to be is, able to be immediately consecrated is, can, bishop. Yeah, you do have to be immediately consecrated a bishop. And I am not capable of being consecrated a bishop. Because you, are, because you have the impediment of marriage. I do. And there is no one available, say, vacante, as it would be to be elected as um, pope to dispense me. I think this might be a case where the where the, I I do not believe that I think this might be a case and the law is not is arguably not clear about this. I, I don't think we'll find in, in, the problem is we won't find an answer in the law. I think this is a lacuna in the law in, in that it's not explicitly stated that if a married layman were elected the pontiff, um, he you know he could he would he'd be dispensed from uh, the obligation of celibacy and as much as he was ordained a bishop, which does not usually happen. But I I I think. You're dispensed by the law itself. Well, you if you just said we can't find an answer in the law, and then you're saying the law itself dispenses, that doesn't make any sense. That's true. I, I think reason itself dispenses, that if the College of Cardinals have chosen <laughs> well, if there's you, one thing I've learned in my canonical education, it's <laughs> reason never dispenses anything. In fact, reason rarely has anything to do with it. <laughs> we were in a conversation the other day with a canon lawyer, uh, a friend of ours, a kind of friend of ours, and he was making an argument that we didn't agree with about some legal principle. And he sort of, his argument was, and we're giving him a hard time about this, like basically like what I am saying, he he was just committed to question begging. What I am saying is so self-evident that any prudent canonist could see, or almost to the point of any good Christian would would know, wouldn't do it. He was just question begging the rationality of his position. And you and I were giving him a hard time about it. And I feel like I'm almost there. Like I realize now I'm almost there, but I, I, I'm not, I, I guess what I would say is I'm not, certain that 
you could not be elected the Roman pontiff. I, I see the problem. I just don't, I don't know what would happen if the Cardinals chose you. Well, I'm, I'm reading, I'm reading UDG now, UDG 87. When the election has canonically taken place, the junior Cardinal Deacon summons into the hall of election, the secretary of the college of Cardinals or the master of or, and the master of papal liturgical celebrations, the Cardinal Dean or the Cardinal who's first in order and seniority in the name of the College of Cardinal Electors, then asks the consent of the one elected with the following words, do you accept your canonical election as Supreme Pontiff? And as soon as he has received the consent, he asks him, by what name do you wish to be called? The Master of Papal Liturgical Celebrations acting as notary and having witnessed the two Masters of Ceremonies who are to be summoned at that moment, draws up a document certifying acceptance by the new Pope and the name taken. After his acceptance, the person elected, if he has already received Episcopal ordination, is immediately Bishop of the Church of Rome, true Pope and head of the College of Bishops, and thus acquires and can exercise full and supreme power over the universal church. If the person elected is not a bishop, he shall immediately be ordained bishop. And there is a merely ecclesiastical law, which ordinarily says that one is impeded from the ordination uh, to the episcopate by, by marriage. Yes. Uh, I if guess the one I... elected is not already a bishop, homage is paid to him, and the announcement of his election is made only after he has been solemnly ordained a bishop. It seems if the one that elected has... resides outside Vatican City, the order containing the ordo rituum conclavis are to be observed. Mmm, that's the law we need. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to... Uh, you know what? This is... Okay, I don't want to sidetrack the whole show with this. So no, no, I'm no, see if it's I, totally fine. I'm going to try I, and get I, my hands on an ordo rituum conclavis. I think we and we may that may have to be for the future. But you would agree with me that it's yeah. not as immediately clear that there's a. The, it's not immediate. The, the law is not explicit about the thing which you are asserting, right? I mean, it's a little bit. There's a. There is at least the, the possibility of a question. Well, no, hang on. Maybe I'm completely wrong here. Let's think this through. Uh, if the impediment of matrimony to receiving sacred orders is not invalidating. Right. It makes uh, it's an, it creates an irregularity it for creates, the exercise. It makes the person irregular for the exercise of orders. But However, it's not invalid. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. So here's the a thing. A merely ecclesiastical law, uh, uh, not, not a matter of divine law, but an ecclesiastical law says that um, a person, you know, uh, is impeded from being ordained uh, if he has a wife, right? Right. So unless he's, can, you, unless you can still validly ordain, but you could still validly ordain him. He's just irregular for the exercise of his orders. But immediately upon receiving ordination or consecration, this episcopal consecration in this case, having been elected pope, I would then immediately attain the fullness of power as the right. one true pope and bishop right. of Rome. Therefore, I could then dispense myself. Of the irregularity. Or be, in a certain way, it seems to me like it's more accurate to say like it would be dispensed by the situation itself. Like, you're, it seems to me that this situation- I'm not having this situational ethics kind nonsense. Of ipso facto dispensation. I, I, I don't know. That Someone's got to dispense you. more rational to me. No, you got to make it right. It's illogical. To, the, the College of Cardinals has basically at that point engaged in um, postulation. They have effectively postulated a candidate that is otherwise ineligible for election, and someone has to resolve that, even if it is the one himself after he attains the ability so to do. Somebody has to resolve the legal difficulty created. It can't just be, well, obviously, there's a problem here. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm kind we're of just going to pretend I mean, it's not. W w when you say can't, I mean, this is the point where like the law just gets 
I, I, I think it, some people might say, no, the law is absolutely clear. You know, you can't be ordained. Uh, you can't be ordained um, unless you're destined for the permanent diaconate. You can't be ordained if you have a wife. Ed has a wife, ergo. But for me, the question is much more at this point, like, well, you, but if the college did it, what mustn't. You, it's you not mustn't. You shouldn't. It's not that you can't. You yeah, can be. Right. They can. So then that's where it becomes for me a much more interesting question of what would happen if they did. I'm sticking with this is my reading now, having you know done thirty seconds of research. Um, this this is my this is my, and to, unless something else is in this order rituum conclavis, which I don't have a copy of in front of me, but I will aim to get. Um, my reading is is pretty straightforward, which is because one can be validly consecrated a bishop despite the irregularity of having a wife. Um, you would be validly consecrated, although irregular for the exercise of orders, but according to UDG, you would immediately assume the fullness of power in the papal office, at which point you could immediately dispense yourself the irregularity. And you think, I don't think that is in accord with right reason. It is accord with the law. It makes good sense. Yeah. I just, this notion of dispensing yourself, it seems to me that you're dispensed in a certain way by the situation itself, rather than that you're Dispense. That seems to me to be more reasonable, but um, but you know, some we I learned recently that some very some extraordinarily competent canonists, some canonists who I admire greatly, listen to this show, and they're probably That's shaking terrifying. their heads right now. I know it really is. When when I le- I learned Ed that the canon lawyer whom I probably most respect as a sort of um, uh, as a, like in terms of his canonical competence listens to this show weekly, and I was, uh, I you know this I was. Um, besotted with a complex of inferiority that he would know that we were, uh, you know, not as good of candidates as him. And so if, if that guy's la- listening, he's probably laughing now, but I'd be very glad for him. No, he's the kind of guy who wouldn't realize we're talking about him because he's too humble. <laughs> Actually, probably. that's the really so, irritating part. That's probably Not only so. is he we've smarter got, than us and a better lawyer, he's also just a better human being. We've got more stuff to talk about with regard to the College of Cardinals and some of our feedback from our draft. But first, uh, a word from our sponsors. Ed, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is sponsored by Seton Home Study School. Seton Home Study School is an accredited school with more than 15,000 students that aims to help families bring Catholic education into their homes uh, to make it possible for them to homeschool with a curriculum, with educators available and standing by, with all the things that you need to take up the vocation of being the primary educators of your children. Their tuition is a fraction of um, most other uh, sort of brick and mortar Catholic schools, if you will. And they make Catholic education available in every corner of the country and to every family. Seton is a nonprofit, which does everything possible to reduce costs and keep tuition low and affordable so that as many families as possible can get and give an authentic Catholic education in the context of their family. That is all true. But in addition to offering full school enrollment, um, they also make all of their textbooks, all of their educational resources available individually. So it's not like you have to buy, you know, eighth grade or something. You can buy individual textbooks and individual subjects, parts of it. So if you want to use this to try out, to see what it's like, to supplement your child's education at home in some way, it's available to do that. You know, Seton make a big thing of, and I think it's really cool, making sure that every, that the faith is worked into every single subject they teach and not in, you know, sort of weird ways. Um, but like, you know, making sure that you're studying math with the Catholic faith as part of that, that how do we think about these things as Catholics? Science, 
literature, all of this stuff. And the other thing you can do, of course, is you they offer single course enrollments. So if you want to take, for example, a high school level theology course, like understanding the scriptures or the early church fathers, you can. And you know, you can even do that together with one of your children. If it's something that you think you could, you know, do with a primer yeah. on or a refresher on, that's a possibility mm-hmm. too. So if you would like to know more about it, if you'd like to see if Seton is right for you and your family, you can go to setonhome.org. They've got a beginner's guide to Seton video there. You can you can take a look around and I strongly encourage you to do so. Yeah, check out the beginner's guide to Seton and there's a sign up form right there uh, at setonhome.org where you can go to setonhome.org, check out the beginner's guide and tell them that you heard about uh heard about all of that from uh, me and Ed at the Pillar podcast. And that would be great because that keeps Seton coming back and it also will provide you with some really good and important information. They also have an eight minute video on their homepage that can really help people who are interested to learn more uh, about Seton Home Study School. So check it out, setonhome.org. So JD, um, having discussed why married people shouldn't attempt to be (laughs) consecrated a bishop. Perhaps we should talk about why consecrated bishops shouldn't attempt to become married people. Indeed. Because How about in that the, for a transition to a topic yeah, I had that was no idea really we were talking about great. next? That was, we were going to talk about more stuff about the College of Cardinals, but we realized that something very interesting happened in the news this week. I mean, something very sad and 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 and, and tragic with some difficult parts to it, but um, but very interesting from a sort of canonical perspective, and, and, and that's how we want to talk about it, because the uh, Emeritus Bishop of Albany, New York, Bishop Howard Hubbard, uh, announced on Tuesday that he, Ed, has uh, attempted marriage uh, with uh, a woman. Bishop Hubbard, who is 84 years old, uh, was diocesan bishop in Albany until 2014, at which point he retired, um, and uh, and is a very controversial uh, figure. Hubbard has faced allegations uh, himself of sexually abusing minors and has admitted to reassigning abuser priests and failing to report uh, allegations of abuse to law enforcement. I mean, he is sort of, um, the allegations against him are like a, um, a, a very pointed example of uh, of the scandals, the sexual abuse scandals, which have facaded the church kind of all concentrated in one person. And at the same He's time- He's basically the poster child for the the sort of stuff that happened that created the, you know, that caused the New York state legislature to create the look back window and, yeah. you know, all of that stuff. And at the same time, he is also known uh, in Albany and further afield for um, permitting, engaging in, and perhaps encouraging what we might call liturgical uh, innovation and deviation from um, the rubrics of the church. And um, many people have criticized him for his teaching ministry and said that during his time as Bishop of Albany, the catechetical initiatives of the diocese or his own personal catechetical initiatives were not in accord with the doctrine of the Catholic Church and that that, that was a, an occasion of scandal and also something which uh, I've heard many people say and read recently many accounts of people who say that that was um, something which rather dramatically impacted the uh, the um, stability of the of, of the church in Albany and uh, the faith of, of many people who, who once identified as Catholic and have now become disaffected from the faith. So, Bishop Hubbard, we reported in November uh, a little bit about Bishop Hubbard, didn't we? Uh, we did, um, because we reported that he was actually asking, um, he was seeking the favor from the Holy Father uh, through the good offices of the Dicastery for Bishops. Um, he was petitioning to be relieved and dispensed from the obligations of the clerical state, including 
the obligation of celibacy. Yeah, we we reported that he had a petition to be laicized, and we broke the news that he had petitioned to be laicized because, as our sources in Albany told us, or, or maybe sources in now I can't remember where the sources were, but as sources told us, that w- which were more specified in the story, I'm sure, uh, Bishop Hubbard intended to uh, attempt marriage, and he had informed the Holy See that he wished uh, he wished to marry, and therefore um, he wanted to be laicized and dispensed from celibacy, and. As I recall, the identity of his um, his beloved has not been identified, but as I recall, we had heard implications that his beloved was a much younger woman than he with whom he had taken up a domicile. Not, not so much implications. I, I, I've had it told me quite specifically by a couple of different people that the lady in question is several decades his junior. Um, I mean, again, he is... 84. 84. So, I mean, that's what you're, I mean, you go on, you go on Hinge, Bumble, or Match.com at 84, everybody's going to be several decades your junior. Uh, I, I would I imagine. <laughs> I'd hope. I would presume, actually. I have no idea. Um, but I'm guessing. At any rate, um, Bishop Hubbard, peti- we reported last year that Bishop Hubbard had petitioned for laicization, and he didn't get it. Um, and so he wrote a letter, uh, a sort of open letter in the Albany Union Leader this week in which he Times Union, I think. Times Union in the Albany Times Union this week, in which he told the uh the people of the Diocese of Albany, and I suppose those who were observing this, that he uh had that his petition for laicization had not been accepted, and that Rome had told him to wait because of the myriad lawsuits against him. Um that there are myriad lawsuits against him in the diocese related to his comportment, behavior, and alleged misconduct during his time as diocesan bishop, and that it would not be appropriate to laicize him during the context of that litigation because Rome really doesn't like to do anything during the context of litigation. I mean, they, they, when they're able to, they like to have sort of litigation resolved before they make some ecclesial movement in the context of a diocese. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but he said that Rome having said no, um, hold your horses. Uh, in March, he decided he wasn't going to wait and instead he attempted he couldn't, civil he marriage. He couldn't hold on to those horses, Ed. He went down no. to the courthouse uh, sometime in July, I guess, with his gal on his arm. And uh, and uh, he said, I do. And she said, I do. And the judge said, man and wife. Um, and nothing happened. Right. And so Howard Hubbard says that he has married. No, the does he Albany, say he is? Well, he said that he, he said that he did this thing. Um, I'm pretty sure he thinks that he said that he got married. Well, he may be saying that, but he doesn't think he's actually married because Bishop Hubbard is many things and alleged to be many other things and worse. Um, but he's not unfamiliar with the church's teaching. Uh, he may he, reject it. He may reject it, but he's not unaware of it. Uh, if he does reject the church's teaching, then we can add heresy to the charge sheet against him, which I'm always delighted to do when the opportunity presents itself. But let's that's not have that conversation. That's right. an interesting sidebar that we could have because – he has not said that he rejects it, but I know that in your sort of school of canonical interpretation, you'd be inclined to say that his comportment might itself suggest that he rejects it, which is problematic for me because it seems to suggest that any time a person commits a grave public sin, you would sort of tack heresy onto the... To no, the I wouldn't. And in Howard's case, I, oh, we're getting sidetracked on the thing I, thought, <laughs> I said I don't want to get sidetracked in. I'm not saying it was merely the attempt of civil marriage that would prove it, but if he did in fact say in his open letter to the post-Argyle intelligence or whatever it is they have in Albany. Um, if he did say to them, I am now married, then he's manifesting a belief. Which is words. contrary to the, te- to, the yeah. to the... So 
so he'd have to say that if he said I have I I contracted a civil union or something like that, that doesn't cut it. Okay, so this yeah. is what we should talk about because I've seen. Yes. Uh, I think there's some confusion kind of about this has uh, has a has risen to the fore. I think some confusion about what marriage is and how it's contracted because I, I've heard from people who say because we sort of framed it. We, our headline was like a. Bishop Hubbard attempts marriage, and and the diocese too was sort of saying he attempted marriage. He tried to get married, but the yes, marriage is and it was valid. a swing and a miss, right? Exactly. Um, it, but many people have said we don't understand. It's not a sacrament of marriage, but it's clearly a valid marriage, and that it's recognized by the state, or it's a valid marriage for the state or by the state, um, even if the church doesn't see it as a valid marriage. There's a kind of subjectivist. Um, uh, uh, vibe around, I think, the way a lot of people understand marriage and the civil state and 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 the ecclesial authority, and 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 it seems to me actually that Hubbard's attempt uh, at marriage is a good time to kind of break down what marriage is and what the state has to do with it and what uh, the church has to do with it. Yes, so the, there's a there's a few terms we should dispel out front, um, and and while clarifying these terms, we should also dispel a few myths about the church. A lot of people, I think, have the have the idea that um, the church has authority over and concerned for sacramental marriage, and then there is civil marriage, and the the two overlap as much as possible. But sometimes you get civilly married, but it's not a sacrament, and so the church doesn't say you're married because you're not sacramentally married, but the civil laws do because you got married at the courthouse and you got a piece of paper. That is not what the church teaches that is not how the church views it marriage is a covenant a partnership by between a man and a woman by which they you know a, an agreement between a man and a woman by which they establish a partnership for the whole of life and they do so by virtue of their consent marriage is a, a reality an existing reality i think we should start there and then talk about what the state where the state comes in and where sacramentality comes in right so it's important to understand that marriage predates the church it's not and the that, state and the state so it's not that the church invented marriage, and or the state before, did, or the state invented. Yes, thank you. Or the state this is getting a bit Pythonesque. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Calm down, Loretta. We've we've covered the state. Um, so you don't get that reference, but some I don't get that reference. Some people will. Anyway, um, no, marriage is a sacrament when two baptized Christians, two validly baptized Christians, are married. That's it. That right. it is by its nature. The marriage becomes sacramental. If two atheists get married, first of all, that is presumed by the church and treated as a valid marriage, every bit as valid as a marriage in a church by two Catholics. And if those two atheists who have married and are validly married subsequently are baptized and become Christians, their marriage ipso facto becomes sacramental. Yeah, I mean, by I'm virtue of them being baptized, I'm going to say something that I think will cause scandal, but I I don't think it's scandalous, and I think it's true. Sacramentality is incidental to the nature and to the essence of marriage itself. Oh, absolutely! It's yeah. an it's an added bonus. It's like yeah. this is you know congratulations marriage, yeah. by you know Christ in His generosity has raised marriage to the dignity of a sacrament when it's between two baptized, and that is lucky for us. But it is not. You are not any more married by virtue of your marriage being sacramental. Let me take a crack then, at breaking this down, if I can, in a kind of layered way. So, who invented marriage? Ed? God did, JD. God, God invented marriage, right? And he wrote it. He wrote it in the in the hearts of Adam and Eve, uh, our proto parents, and then those who came after them. 
And um, in that, that thing that we recognize as a legal reality called the natural law. The natural law, right? Um, that God reveals um, in, the very, in the very nature of our being that marriage is a reality by which men and women consent to one another to establish a lifelong partnership. And then that partnership is sexual in nature. Good of the spouses and for the procreation. Procreation of children. Yeah. And, and, and so it's, it's essentially in, in the natural law establishes that men and women establish a lifelong sexual partnership with one another. Um, and that that sexual partnership begets children and that they have an obligation, therefore, to raise those children, right? Yes. Um, okay. So that's what marriage is. And that thing called marriage is a, is a, is a fundamental human reality, which precedes the state and precedes the church, which, which people have the right and ability to enter into, um, by virtue of their personhood. Um, and so the state, as, as we, as the church teaches in the church, the church, the state doesn't establish marriage. The church doesn't, the state doesn't make marriage. The state regulates marriage, right? The state has the right to kind of regulate the contracting of marriage between people who live, you know, between its citizens or those who, who are domiciled. It's a its qualified territory. right to the extent that they only do so in accord with the natural law, that's which right. very few states do anymore. That's right. That's right. Um, that's right. The state has a qualified right to regulate marriage. The state has the right to say, you know, you have to be 18 to get married, even though um, the natural law might not say that at all times and all moments in history. In fact, the church recognizes that the age of people can get married younger than that. is 14 for a lady. Yeah. So people can get married younger than that. Although it's, there are all kinds of qualifiers around the possibility of getting married uh, under the age of 18, even in canon law. Right. Are you waiting for me to contradict you? No, I'm waiting for you to affirm that actually. Oh, so no one, I, we're calling for, I don't want anyone to think we're calling for child marriage or something. <laughs> no, but you have you know, to. I mean, you, you have, have to, to account for these things. Yeah. But again, this is again because marriage is a function of the natural law, right? And, and the, the church's recognition of the definition of marriage is in accord with the natural yeah. law. Yeah. Okay. So the state can regulate marriage to some extent, in accord with, but not contrary, not not kind of contravening natural law. The state can say that you have to be uh, eighteen to get married. The state can also impose some requirements of formality to get married. The state can say. Um, you know, you have to get married um, by someone who is authorized. In front to, of witnesses. In front of witnesses or someone who's authorized to witness the marriage or record the marriage. The marriage must be recorded in the next way. These kinds of things. The church, which ha exercises authority over the baptized, can also regulate marriage. Can it not, Ed? It can and it does. And it establishes, first of all, it canonizes civil regulation to the extent to which it is not in contradiction with either canon law or the natural law. And basically says, if the state says you must do it and it is not against the law of the church or the law of nature, you have to do that um, unless there are good reasons. And sometimes there are good reasons why the church will um, witness the contracting of a marriage outside of the civil forum, sort of, you know, purely in, in the ecclesiastical context. Uh, but as a general premise, it canonizes the civil law and also it regulates law around um, the contracting of marriages by and between. Catholics, what we call canonical forms, saying you, you should be getting married in a church. It should be a priest or at least a deacon who is receiving the consent of the parties, that you have to have two witnesses, all of this sort of stuff. Now, all of this is merely ecclesiastical law. It can be dispensed. It can be, you know, you can get permission to do it elsewhere in a different way if you need to, but you need to actually do that. It could um, eventually so even be changed, the requirements. It the could eventually be changed. It could, we lived for the vast majority of human history, even... I think I'm right in saying at this point, the vast majority of the church's history, there was no canon law, there was no canonical form of marriage. Required for validity. 
required for validity. If you wanted to get married, all you had to do was look your beloved deeply in the eye and say, I marry you. And they had to say, mm-hmm. me too. And that was yeah. all that was necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, that created a lot of problems, which is why the church came up with canonical form and everything. Yeah. But that that is the that that's where we should start with all of this. Um, yeah. Where did you want to go from here, JD? No, I just wanted to so just to recap. So um everybody has the right to get married. Um oh gener- okay, so hang there's there's one other thing I want to say. To the to the degree that um again, the church claims authority over marriage, not sacramental marriage, marriage, full stop, because marriage is a product of law. It is a product of divine natural law. And also ecclesiastical law built around it. And the church recognizes, again, the qualified right of the state to regulate marriage in some circumstances and within certain parameters. And when it acts within those parameters, the church's law, canon law, canonizes the civil law and says, yes, that too. But lest anyone think that the church is just concerned with quote unquote sacramental marriages or church marriages or anything like that, if you ask any canon lawyer who has served in a marriage tribunal, and I have, um, they will tell you. That they have seen cases, in some cases, many, many cases, in my case, certainly more than two dozen, um, where you are asked to judge the validity or nullity of a marriage between two people who are not baptized. Who are not baptized, right. And the church not claims get married the authority, in a church. And the church claims the authority to, to make that judgment. Yes, because what will happen, if you're thinking, why would the church ever be asked to do that, is if two people want to get married, one of them is previously married and has a civil divorce, and they say, well, I was you know, an atheist, and I got married in a courthouse uh, to you know, my high school sweetheart. And then, you know, things happened and the marriage broke down. And now I'd like to get married to this nice Catholic girl I've met and I'm entering the church. And the church still presumes that their previous marriage was valid Valid, and they are still bound by that. And the church has the authority and exercises the authority to examine that first union and to say, okay, was this a valid marriage between two atheists in a courthouse? Absolutely. And and in principle, I mean, even if an unbaptized atheist doesn't wish, um, to marry a Catholic, but just wants to know about the validity of their marriage, they have the right to petition the tribunal to, to make a judgment of that because the church has the authority. She didn't claim it. She has the authority to make judgments about the validity of marriage. Okay. So if you are a person, you have the right to attempt to contract marriage. Uh, if you are a person and you live in a state uh, under the under the um, jurisdiction of some government, then all things being equal for the most part with some all kinds of exceptions that we could go down and even some exceptions of principle that we could address, all things being equal, you generally speaking have an obligation to observe the legal norms of regulation from the state with regard to marriage. If you are a Catholic, you have an obligation to observe the legal norms of the church with regard to the regulation of marriage. So if you are a Catholic, you have sort of three, you have this natural reality of marriage and the natural human right to it. You have the obligation to observe the norms of the state, and then you have the obligation to observe the norms of the church, all of which are, again, regulating marriage but not establishing it. Bishop Hubbard. So when we or anyone else, including the current Bishop of Albany um, and the diocese there and the Holy See say that Bishop Hubbard has attempted marriage, we don't Because the church says that he's not qualified to contract marriage. The church- And that the civil exchange of consent in which he says he engaged- last month, is not valid. It doesn't matter if the state says, it, this is a valid marriage, we recognize this is a valid marriage. That might have some bearing on Bishop Hubbard's tax returns for next year, right. but it has absolutely no bearing on the existential reality of whether or not he is married. He is right. not married. Because the because church he's says- he's <laughs> Yeah, the church says a cleric can't validly contract marriage. And the church has yes. the right to say that, and he's a cleric, QED. But why is that important? 
I think it's important to sort of know that marriage is this beautiful and ancient primordial reality, the basis of all things, and uh, and is unique among the sacraments because um, it is this natural relationship which is elevated to sacramental dignity, and that the church, b- because of the sovereignty which she has by virtue of her being um, the body of Christ, has the authority to make judgments about this natural law reality um, and uh, and and the ensuing sacramental reality between the baptized. But I think it is it, it's very important for us to see that marriage is not a creation like there's not this thing called matrimony that the church created or that Jesus created that's different from this thing that the government creates that's different from just sort of doing what comes naturally so to speak that those things are all connected to each other in a, in a way that sort of connects the incarnation to our humanity because in elevating marriage to a sacrament between the baptized effectively this very primordial part of our human identity is assumed into the body of Christ and the sacramental economy. That the incarnate that it's that the incarnation um, and its consequences are not sort of external to our existence, but but are by marriage itself and the sacramentalizing of marriage, sort of sanctifying this this very profound part of our being as humans. Okay. I think that's important, right? Because that's why when people say like, people people don't say this as much anymore, but when there were a lot of arguments about gay marriage and civil law, and, you know, kind of this Obergefell and these kinds of things, a lot of people were saying, well, the church should just get out of this, the civil marriage business. The church shouldn't do marriage ceremonies that um, have civil effect. And I, that really bothered me because again, it, it, it separated, it, it, it created this false distinction between the sacrament of matrimony and the thing which exists in the state and didn't assign either of them precisely to this profound human relationship, which is marriage, this profound natural relationship, which is marriage. The church kind of can't get out of the civil marriage barriers precisely because when people contract marriage, that contracting has effects in civil law and in the sacramental economy. And those things are kind of unified there. There's no, to my way of thinking, when it comes to marriage, no clean and neat separation of church and state and attempts to to separate church and state with regard to marriage do 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 marriage as an institution kind of an injustice um uh, yeah i would agree to a point um <laughs> but I, I well it's not that i think the church should get out of the marriage business i think the state should get out of the marriage business that the state shouldn't regulate marriage at all. But doesn't she have an obligation? I mean, if she's not fulfilling it, but doesn't the state have an obligation to regulate marriage? Isn't it in the I, public interest? I, I, look, I don't know. I, I I know that the people who, you know, live and die by Augustine, City of God, and all this stuff have some very highfalutin ideas about, you know, the the necessity and um, purpose of the secular authority. And, and that's fine, and I accept that. But to my mind, when the civil authority has proven itself so incapable of conforming to or recognizing even the basics of natural law, we should be encouraging them just not to play in that pool anymore. If you can't understand that, then you you shouldn't you shouldn't be providing a countersign and undermining the natural law further by the way by your participation. The church should stay in the marriage business. I don't you know if the state wants to have all of this stuff that's you know they've brought in. And they're going to, I think, bring in more. And you know, you, you you can't read the New York Times without being told that you know polygamy is great and cool and fashionable. You know, all this stuff like this is all coming. Um, 
Yeah, so I think the, I think the the to make thing if we want to end confusion over terms and everything, the, the state should stop calling what they do marriage. They what they have is civil partnerships, and you know, fine. But the problem with that is, and I recognize this, and this is why I said I agree with you up to a point, and it gets blurry around the edges. Is there is a natural law right to marriage, and people have a right to contract marriage, regardless of whether they are in the Catholic Church, regardless of whether or not they're baptized, any of that. Every person has an equal right and dignity to marriage, to access marriage. That is the natural state between a man and a woman. And so while you were saying all of this, I think very, very good and very right stuff about um, you know, the 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 elevation of marriage to a sacrament when contracted between us is this rich, ennobling um, you know, function of the church. And I agree with all that. But the other thing is when people try and draw a distinction between sacramental marriage and other marriage, that that's an offense against general human dignity. Yeah, like, that's what I was saying. I am to get at. no Greek, more yeah. married to my wife than the Jewish couple who live next door, or the Hindu couple who live across the street, or the atheists who live down the road. That as a essential bedrock function of human dignity, those people can and are married. And if and you the church are, recognizes that, yeah, and the fact that I have access that. The church to affirms that, right? Absolutely, and the fact that I in my marriage because. It is contracted between two baptized Christians, have access to the graces of the sacramental nature of marriage between the baptized is lucky for me, but it doesn't make my marriage any more marriage. Right. It is strengthened it makes it by a sacrament, but I'm not any more married. And it doesn't, and that, that sacramentality doesn't change the ends or properties or goods of the thing. No, I, my marriage the, is the no more indissoluble. strengthens, right. My my marriage is no more or less indissoluble than the the marriage of any of my neighbors. My marriage is no more or less um, oriented to exactly the same um, ends. That is the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of children. All of these things are exactly the same. And so, yeah, it, you know, we and it's it's a shame because it sort of it by I think also it it speaks to an anthropology that is false, which is that you know human history began with the church, right? It didn't. Um, you know, God has been the author of all human history that, you know, so the, the, the history of salvation began with Adam and ran through Noah and Abraham and Isaac and, you know, all that, like, you know, through the whole of human history, God has been present. And, you know, the, the people who came before Christ are part of a different period of history and their relation to the mission and salvific nature of Christ and everything is different because of where in time they lived, but they aren't lesser in human dignity as a result. Right. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. And a cleric who is bound to the obligation of celibacy who attempts marriage also commits an offense against the institution of marriage and an offense against human dignity by suggesting that marriage is uh, the kind of plaything into which one can uh, slip apart from the authority of, of the church. Right. Well, and let's be honest, but what, and you know, we've talked about this before and I will cover it in my newsletter tomorrow and everything. Um, what Bishop Hubbard is doing is, I don't think he's entering illusions about the validity or not of this civil union that he's tried to contract. Um, but he's doing it to get what he wants from the Vatican, that what he expects, and I think he's probably right, what the Vatican will not grant him as a favor, they will impose as a penalty if he makes a mess. And so yeah. that's what he's up to. Yeah. Okay. Ed, you want to play a game? I do want to play a game. I have a game. You I have, have a game? game too. Yeah. Well, this okay. Is fun. Do we want is to play two games? Good or... My game's let's, fine. Well, let's do you want see. To... We'll play two games. 
Okay, well, you go first. Okay. Well, Ed, it's World Youth Day right now, and so um, I thought we could play a little quick round, especially since we have two games, a quick round of youth, yes or no. Youth, yes or no? Youth, yes or no. So each of these things will have in some some way, for the most part, the word youth or young in it or... Um, uh, or so you're what stuff young people you. like, and I say yes no, or no? Oh, good. This isn't going to play into the stick caricature of me as a grumpy old man. Y- you'll good. see what I mean. You'll understand the category once we get to work. Shall, shall, we, okay. shall, we, shall we get started? Okay, Ed. Yes. yes or no, youth yes or no for World Youth Day. Um, Ed, Sonic Youth. Is that something to do with cheeseburgers? No. Sonic Youth is an alternative, a very popular alternative band, rock band. I'm unaware of them. I thought this would be like the kids' menu at Sonic Burger. No, Sonic Youth is okay. like a very great rock band. I, I'm unfamiliar. Yes or I'm no? Say no. Sonic Youth, yes or no? No. Wow. Jeez. Yikes. Uh, Ed Young Frankenstein. Yes. Okay. Ed YMCA, the Young Man's Christian Association, the song. Oh yes. Okay. YMCA. I, I defy you to listen to that song. And remain perfectly motionless. <laughs> and YMCA, the YMCA. I've never been to one. Oh, uh, really? Per- you should go. Uh, yeah, there's a song that tells me I should, but I, <laughs> it, perhaps in part because of that song, I have not been. Oh. Um, so I'm going to say no. My mom worked at a Y when we were kids, and so we kind of grew up at the Y. We were always there, and I loved it. Did you have a good meal while you were there? Uh, yeah, we did. And we got ourselves Great. clean. Yeah. Okay. Ed, this is the only uh, the only one that doesn't have the word young youth, uh, et cetera, in it uh, for the most part. Um, Ed, my cousin Vinny. Yes. Because yeah. of two youths. Because of two gotcha. youths, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Uh, this is another one without the word youth right in it, but you'll see why. Ed, we were soldiers. Uh, I mean, yes, I Did guess. you see that movie? No, I'm, but I'm familiar that it's a, it's a war film. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, um, it, it's a, it's I'm, a great I'm movie. Pretty great. So I'm saying yes to it. Um, and it's because young men were doing the fighting. You, you should see it. Well, there, it's, it's based upon a book entitled We Were Soldiers Once and Young, which was written by oh. um, General Harold Moore, who's a big deal in, over there in Vietnam. So again, yes. Yeah. Anyway, you should see We Were Soldiers is good. Ed, um, The Young and the Restless. Uh, yeah, go on. <laughs> yes. You're going, yes. You know, the Young and the Restless is effectively Coronation Street for the Americans. You understand that, right? Yeah. And okay. I, I, I have a soft spot for trash TV. I'm not specifically familiar with Young and the Restless, but I mean, but you, you don't know, need da- to be. You like um, Love is Blind. Garbage and, daytime TV yeah. is is a thing I think the world is mostly better off for. Yeah, you do tend to like that stuff. Okay. And finally, Ed, the Young Pope, the HBO oh, series. You know, uh, the, the okay. Um, Jude Law as the pontiff. I only saw one or two episodes. Okay, I uh, this is a shame because I I watched much of this show when it came out because it looked like it was incredibly well shot and it was. Mm-hmm. It looked like it was, especially for uh, a show about the the Vatican. Um, it was. It appeared to be very well researched or very well informed about how the Roman Curia actually works. I I was at times incredulous at how true to life it was in terms of the workings of the Roman Curia and how sort of cardinals work and you know all that stuff. That that part was all great. Um 
Jude Law was giving a fantastic performance. Some of the dialogue was incredibly well written. It was beautifully shot. The cinematography was incredible. But right smack in the middle of one of the episodes, and it's where I stopped watching and so did my wife, there was the most appalling sex scene I have ever seen. I'm not oh, like no. I'm not one of those people who gets the vapors every time you see a you know uh, someone's the bottom. <laughs> what? Oh sorry, I just didn't know what you were saying. Yeah, I don't get the vapors every time you see, you know, a backside on crosses the television screen. But this was, I, we, I, I don't know how it ended because I we turned it off. And we didn't resume the show or finish the scene, so I don't know how bad it got. But I mean, it was, I don't know how to describe it other than pornographic. And so that I found incredibly off-putting. And so for that, no. Okay, there you go. Good, good answers all around. What do you got? Um, so my game, I actually had uh, for last week when we were doing the C9, because I thought we would, you know, I'd want to, we'd want to lower the tone after such a heady conversation. Um, but we didn't get to it because we had so much other fun. But I have, um, in honor of the, you know, the the film release recently, which I don't know if you've been to see or not yet. Have you been to see Barbie? I have not been to see Barbie. I, I have not. Okay. So I have a round of, it, this is a kind of variation of yes or no. It's Barbie true or false. Oh, okay. Because um, as you know, Barbie's had many careers over the decades. And so I'm going to read you a list of Barbie of career Barbies. And you're going to say that is an actual Barbie true or no, you've just made that. Oh, up. I see. They didn't okay. actually so make you're going to list that me false. different kinds of Barbies. And I'm going to say that whether they're real or not real. Yes. Okay. That's and fun. I here's, here's just for the fun and edification of our listeners. I'm not going to tell you how you're doing as you go. Kate can superimpose the, you know, that thing you love so much, the bing, 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 or but I won't tell you what your running score is until the end. That's fun. That's a great idea. Good game. Okay. Ready? Yep. All right. Pasta Chef Barbie. Specifically Pasta Chef Barbie. Not just Chef Barbie, but- No, this is, I'm, I'm, yeah, specifically Pasta Chef Barbie. You could buy a box with a doll in it that was Pasta Chef Barbie. I I want that to be true. I want it to be real. And I, therefore- You wouldn't want that to be real. But, but I don't think it could be. No, okay. I, my answer is no. All right. Cabaret dancer Barbie. No. Uh, okay. Maybe, unless. <sighs> Your call. <sighs> okay, so there, so there, so- you know, there's the musical. And again, ca- I remind you, I'm giving you either a made-up title, I understand, or a title as appears on box. So there's a music, the musical cabaret, and I would not be surprised if Barbie had a line of Broadway play, like licensing agreements with musicals, so that she was Broadway plays different. Okay, but what I'm offering you is not cabaret Barbie, but specifically cabaret dancer Barbie. Yes. Okay. I want to know if I got that one right. Okay. Uh, floral designer Barbie. Not florist, but floral designer? Correct. I would assume this is like bartender mixologist. Like, you know, they do, there's no such thing as florists, and they're all floral designers. Yeah. Are. I mean, it would have to be relatively recent because I think people use the word florist until five minutes ago. I mean, if there's a floral designer Barbie, I'd imagine it exists in the last 10 years or so. But. It, Yes. Okay. Loot player Barbie. Oh, no way. No way. Especially because I don't think that loot player is the right phrase. 
I don't think that lute player is the right phrase. I thought it was... You think it should be loudest? I thought it was loudest. Yes, I thought it was loudest. <laughs> okay. Um, game developer Barbie. Oh, my gosh. Video game developer Barbie? Yeah. Game developer Barbie. <sighs> no way. Unless... <laughs> no, unless... Ah. <laughs> <sighs> It's so out there. And the reason I'm going to pick it is because I don't think that you would know that game developer was a thing. (laughs) It is impossible, actually, for me to imagine that you would know that game developer is a thing. So I'm going to say yes. By the way, if you don't have NBA Barbie here, um, can I tell you the story about the Dallas – did you read the really long – not the lengthy piece at ESPN this week about about Dallas Mavericks Barbie? No. Okay, so sometime in the 90s – the uh, Mattel like did a licensing agreement with the NBA and released um, a Barbie in every uniform. They released two Barbies in every uniform, actually. So there were the whole collection at that time. Like maybe there were thirty-two teams in the NBA, and so the whole collection would have been sixty-four Barbies. Because she is freakishly tall, she could probably make yeah, it in the NBA. Because there was um, a, a, a white Barbie and a black Barbie for every team in the team uniform. So Chicago Bulls Barbie, New York Knicks Barbie, whatever. And um, this was during the Jordan era, and so they made hundreds of thousands of Chicago Bulls um, uh, uh, Barbies. But the Mavericks at that time were terrible. You might, might remember that the Mavericks were the first team you played in NBA Jam. Um, yes, I do arcade, remember Yeah, that. because they were terrible in real life. The Mavericks Are they not still terrible? No, Mark Cuban bought them and they have that one guy. In oh, the I, oh, the Cuban year, they got good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I always thought it was funny when I saw that Mark Cuban was a judge on the American version of Dragon's Den because the, doesn't he own the worst team in basketball? Like, recall, how is he like, a template for this? Dirk Nowitzki and whatnot? No, after my time. But okay. okay so so there's, anyway, there's an NBA so player Barbie. It's an NBA player Barbie, and they made a ton of uh, Bulls Barbies and, you know, um, uh, probably a ton of Knicks Barbies because East Coast, whatever. Um, but because the Mavericks were so bad, they made almost no Mavericks Barbies. And so there's this one Barbie collector who has been trying for decades to complete their her collection by getting the Mavericks Barbie and um, trying and trying and trying everywhere to find the Mavericks Barbie and getting the Mavericks Barbie. And this ESPN guy heard about this and started writing a story about it. So then the ESPN guy was like, well, I think well, I'll make the story where I try and find the Mavericks Barbie. In the course of that, he started going on all kinds of Reddit boards and stuff like I'm looking for the Mavericks Barbie. I you know want to find it, whatever. In the course of that, some other Barbie collector, noticing that this ESPN guy was interested in it, f- came across a Mavericks Barbie, bought it for seventy-five bucks, and then turned around and listed it for like fifteen thousand or something like that. Knowing good that, for them, yeah. Right, I mean, sort of. The ESPN guy didn't get clearance. I hope by that they one. paid it. No, he didn't get clearance by that one, but he did later come across another one. But anyway, Mavericks Barbie has been a white whale. No, not a white whale. A, a hard f- a holy grail. Yeah, white yeah, whale. Thank you. Anyway. I, I I I don't think that's quite fair to Moby Dick to make that. It's the thing you're better. chasing. You can't catch. Yeah, but the white whale is more than just the thing you're chasing. It's the thing which is infecting you. You know what I mean? The thing that's making you crazy. And that's yeah, not it's in your mind. You can't sleep for it. It's you. It's tormenting you, but it's not really. If tor- you're paying fifteen thousand dollars for a Barbie doll, I think Grail is better. Became something of Grail for Barbie collectors, and I just thought you'd like them. Dallas Mar- Mavericks Barbie. Yes, she's real. That's fascinating, Mattel, and I like that. This was what was really interesting about it is. Sorry, Mattel could hardly confirm it because it turns out that what ESPN learned is Mattel doesn't have great records. Like, eventually, somebody at Mattel was willing to kind of like do a bunch of 
work to look in the archives and stuff like that. But it turned out that Mattel doesn't just have like, you know, a database that an Excel spreadsheet that they type in and they have a list of every Barbie. It's much more complicated than that. Huh? Well, that is fascinating. And I, I delight in these things. You're quite correct. I enjoy it. So actually this, this should make the next one interesting for you. MLB player Barbie. Uh, yes. News anchor Barbie. Anchor woman Barbie. Yes. Cat burglar Barbie. <laughs> oh. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Every time you go no, then you go ah. Unless. I mean, all of them just sound so crazy. I don't want to rule anything out. Ah. There's no harm in saying yes. You're saying yes to cat burglar Barbie. How am I doing? Rapper Barbie. How am I doing? I'm not telling you until the end. Rapper Barbie. Oh, gosh. I'd like to believe that Rapper Barbie came out in the early 90s and that she had an MC Hammer parachute pants. Like, I'd like to believe that MC that, that Rapper Barbie isn't like, they didn't release Rapper Barbie standing over the body of Tupac or something like that. that it was, <laughs> oh, my gosh. More kind of party rap than... <laughs> Are you saying yes or no? Do you know they made an arrest in the they they made an arrest in yeah, the no, yeah. they haven't made an arrest they've made a they've searched they served a search warrant oh they executed a search warrant in the possible murder of of Tupac yes I'm yeah. keeping a close eye on this yeah that's very interesting um anyway so rapper Barbie yes or no? yeah okay and since you made such a thing I will actually tip my hand a little bit here and tell you that not only is rapper Barbie real she was released in 1992 <laughs> oh yes I thought you'd be happy with it. okay McDonald's cashier Barbie. McDonald's Barbie. McDonald's cashier Barbie. I know that this is because the pastor's daughter in the Presbyterian church in which I grew up had, I forgot, had the Barbie McDonald's set. Ah. The play set. Okay. Chicken Farmer Barbie. Chicken Farmer Barbie. Yes. Specifically. Specifically Chicken Farmer Barbie. See, I don't think you would think of that. <laughs> and I also think it's possible. Okay, if I were Mattel and I were marketing, do you remember like the trend of backyard chickens was super popular? Oh yeah. yeah. It was the all the greeny thing. And so then the mom is like gonna be like, we're gonna be background chicken backyard chicken person. And the, the daughter's like, I don't want to do that. And so then the mom's like, Oh, I bought you a chicken farmer Barbie, just like I'm a chicken farmer. <laughs> so I would think Mattel would see the marketing potential there. And I don't think you would think of a chicken farmer as a thing. We were recently making a list of interesting people, uh, interesting and unusual people. Like if you said corn farmer, we were just talking about how interesting it would be to be a corn farmer. I would know. But I don't think you would think that. So I'm, I think yes. Okay. I, I'm just going to remind you, you have so far said you think all of these are real apart from two. Well, am, am I right? I mean, I have no idea. I'm, I'm I'll tell you at the end. I just want I, I just want you to have a sense of your percentages so far. Um, okay. Noodle bar waiter, Barbie. Noodle bar waiter. Yes. Noodle bar waiter, Barbie. Well, waiter is a masculine. So it's, are you suggesting the box would say noodle bar waiter? Mm-hmm. And not waitress or noodle bar owner or staff member or something like that but you I, look don't get hung up on that if i was you because I you can't even it. say yeah but you can't even say actress anymore you have to refer to lady actress as actress okay so you're arguing in favor of noodle bar i'm not i'm What's just trying to I, 
It's a bar where they serve noodles, I guess. I don't know. What's a noodle bar? Like a ramen place? I, I, I don't know. Ramen uh, shop bar, I, Barbie, like I think would be a no-brainer. Man. I'm picturing but... Barbie and all these salarymen, <laughs> these Japanese salarymen. Just... <laughs> uh, yeah, it's got to be. Actually, I think I've seen pictures of that restaurant. But um... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's got to be. Okay, you're saying yes. Paratrooper Barbie. Paratrooper Barbie. There's no harm in saying yes. Okay. Yes. And finally, vice presidential candidate, Barbie. <laughs> she's got candidate? she's dreaming big, but she still knows her place. Candidate? She's not going all the way. VP candidate Barbie. Okay. So if there was a VP candidate Barbie, it either came out in 2020. When was Biden elected? Um, I believe our president was elected in 2020. 2020. Okay, so it either came out in 2020, or when did Sarah Palin run for vice president of America of the United States of America? Uh, 08, was it? Something so like this that? is basically a Kamala Barbie or a Sarah Palin Barbie. Either that, or they just, Mattel believes there is a glass ceiling, and you know, there's no point making a presidential <laughs> is there candidate a presidential Barbie. No candidate one's gonna... Barbie? Is there a presidential candidate Barbie? There's I'm not telling be president you. Barbie. There's got to be President Barbie. I'm sure of that. Why would it, look if you're if you're thinking is correct and that this oh, is a t- Ferraro, why would th- right? Geraldine Ferraro ran for vice president in 1980. Hillary Clinton ran for president. Hillary Clinton ran for president, but we're just talking about vice presidents right now. When did Geraldine Ferraro run for president for vice president? I have no idea. Um. Neither do I. 84, something like that. Walter Mondial had Gerald. I thought he had Ted Kennedy as his VP. No, Geraldine Ferrer. And I think that would have been a good time for, I I could see Barbie crossing the vice presidential candidate glass ceiling at that point. I had forgotten all about Geraldine Ferrer. So we've had three female vice presidential candidates on a major ticket, at least, possibly more, which makes me say, I'm going for it. Yeah. JD, out of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, you got 12. No. Yeah, you're 12 for 14. What did I get wrong? Um, this is where I lift the curtain. You got Pasta Chef Barbie wrong and Loot Player Barbie wrong because these were all real. No. <laughs> Every single one. Some things that you expressed interest in, in addition to rapper Barbie, who was indeed released at the height of MC Hammer's popularity, um, you questioned uh, Pasta Chef Barbie, which came out in 2021, Cabaret Dancer Barbie, not so was far it? as I'm a, No, I don't think it's related musical? to the show. I don't believe it's connected to the musical. came out in 2007. Um, floral Designer Barbie is a fairly recent one, so to your thing about- What, what about um, Waiter, though, that- the noodle bar waiter that didn't a noodle bar waiter barbie was released in 2020 um cat burglar barbie was a special collaboration with designed by christian louboutin and released in 2009 loot player barbie was a japanese only release styled by yu ming and released in 2000 yes Um, wow McDonald's Cashier Barbie was actually released three times in 82, 94, and 2001. And Vice Presidential Candidate Barbie was released, bizarrely given your thought process, in 2016. 2016. No woman was running for vice president, but a woman was running for president. As I said, they just they, – they, they, they thought – Mattel apparently thought Hillary Clinton was getting ideas above her station. And they said, mm. <laughs> That's It's not going to happen for you, Rod. I can't it, believe Geraldine Ferraro was so underrepresented. Uh, this is this is Barbie. <sighs> well, I had 
I hope everybody will tune in next week for a, a rousing game of Oppenheimer. Good, better, best. Um, I will be so down for that. I read <laughs> yeah, that book. Will, I read will, the I read the biography that the movie. Um, we was will play on. Oppenheimer. Good, better, best. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by the Seton Home Study School. To find out if Seton Home Study School is right for you and your family, check it out at setonhome.org. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Editing JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn. My podcasting partner is a curious guy, Ed Condon. We'll be back next week. Thank you.